This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 64. Today we speak with Fowler White and Keith Matheson about the unfolding of biblical eschatology. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have a very large panel with me today. We're very excited to have on again Jeff Waddington, who's teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing fine on this beautiful sunny day. It is. It's, it is nice. I mean, maybe March will go out like a lamb. I guess it, it has to, since this is the last day, but I hope April doesn't come in like a lion here. <laughs> We also have Jim Cassidy, who is the pastor at Calvary OPC in Ringo's. It's a pleasure to have you back, Jim. Good to be here, Camden. We also have with us Lane Keister, who is the pastor at Hull uh, Reformed Church, or Hope Christian Reformed Church in Hague, North Dakota. I, did I mix up the names there, Lane? It's Hull Christian Reformed Church, and sitting happily under a foot of snow. Oh! And... Oh. Uh, all the flooding that's happened earlier, so it was a challenge to get here today. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you back. It's been a little while, so we're pleased to have you and have your input. And we've got a double feature today, if that's the way we want to put it. We are very excited to have with us Fowler White, who's the president of Ligonier, the Ligonier Academy of Biblical and Theological Studies. He's the editor, co-editor of Whatever Happened to the Reformation and contributor to By Faith Alone, answering the challenges to the doctrine of justification. It's great to have you on, Fowler. Thanks. It's good to be here. And uh, we don't have any snow, but we do have a little sunshine and some cloudy skies also <laughs> where we are. <laughs> oh, rub it in. <laughs> and, and it's 80 degrees. I oh. <laughs> and uh, our second guest is Keith Matheson, who's the dean of the Ligonier Academy of Biblical and Theological Studies. He's also the author of this great new book, From Age to Age, The Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology. It's a pleasure to have you on, Keith. It's great to be here. We're really excited today to talk about biblical eschatology. We've got a range of, of topics, uh, to, a range of uh, ideas in that space to talk about. Fowler's done some work on recapitulation and revelation and Keith's new books dealing with eschatology as it unfolds in Scripture. And so we're very uh, excited to talk about that. But we first wanted to stop and talk about the Ligonier Academy of Biblical and Theological Studies. This is a relatively new venture uh, Fowler, would you mind telling us a little bit about this and what uh, what the plan and vision is for Ligonier? Sure, sure. Uh, Ligonier Academy of Biblical and Theological Studies is really a new uh, phase of ministry at uh, Ligonier. What we're endeavoring to do is really recapture some of what was uh, characteristic of Ligonier Study Center back in its founding days when it was a, a destination for learning and for teaching. And uh, in a definite sense, uh, a specific sense, that's what Ligonier Academy is is attempting to recapture now. We we have uh, really three phases of our development that we are uh, have already begun to introduce with the folks. Uh, we announced a Doctor of Ministry program, obviously for ordained uh, men. 
that uh, was announced last fall and uh, for which we are receiving applications through uh, for the first classes this July through June 1st. So any pastors out there who might be interested in a doctor of ministry might take a look at us online at, uh, at dot org or Either of those addresses will work. But that's the first phase. The second phase is a uh, lay phase, a lay person's phase, in which we're going to launch next month certificate uh, programs of study that will focus on uh, everything from Bible, theology, church history, philosophy, apologetics, ethics, and combinations of those uh, topics for lay folks across the range of uh, ability and depth of exposure. So, for example, in that certificate program that begins in April, we will have three uh, levels of uh, intro level, intermediate level, and advanced level to really answer to any of those uh, several uh, uh, entry points that people may have. If you, For example, if you have uh, a a uh, a lay person who's a relatively new christian uh is not well grounded yet in the basics of the christian faith uh you might direct them to the introductory level of our offerings mm-hmm. on the other hand if there's somebody with a little more grounding maybe they've got the basics done but they want to uh they want to look at a topic in a bit more depth, they could go up to the intermediate level. And if you're looking for an advanced level of study, which is probably roughly but not quite at a bachelor's level of instruction, you could uh, get into the uh, advanced level. And uh, we have 19 different uh, levels of or uh, different tracks of study that uh, uh, folks can take advantage of and it really uh, reaches out not only to your standard uh, uh, Christian in the in the pew, so to speak, but uh, people who might see themselves as uh, Sunday school teachers or church officers as well. So there's just a real variety of options that folks can look into there at the certificate program. Our third phase, which I'll just say real briefly, because it's the least uh, least. It's the most distant of uh, of all of them that we're talking about here is a bachelor's program, an undergraduate program that we hope to introduce uh, next year. But uh, it will have a biblical studies major, a theological studies major, and a sacred music major. So uh, that's a... That's a hope that we have uh, in the pipeline, and uh, we're working hard on that. So those are our three phases, and we hope folks will visit the website to take a look at what we're doing. Yeah, and there's a lot of other things at Ligonier as well. I'm really excited about this academy, and I've always enjoyed, uh, ever since the the launch of the website a few years ago, the new new look to it. There's a wealth of material there. You can also find information about all the conferences that happen and uh, and uh, right. get the podcast and everything. And I'd encourage everyone to go visit Ligonier. It's great. Right. Well, uh, I suppose uh, if we don't have any more questions on that subject, um, we can begin talking about biblical eschatology. Before we get into Keith's book, I, I wanted to hit on the subject uh, of recapitulation and revelation. The reason I do that is because there are several 
various uh, eschatological schemes out there. Uh, there are your pre-mills and post-mills and amillennials, and, and uh, they basically have different, well, the, uh, between the premillennial and then the post and the amillennial have different understandings of the book of Revelation in particular. And uh, premillennialists definitely hold to, in chapters 19 and 20, a sequential reading that 19 precedes 20 in, in history, in time. And that and amillennialism and postmillennialism can be a very um, difficult uh, pill to swallow for, for the premillennialist because it seems so obvious that uh, there is a millennial period uh, that precedes uh, the final judgment, uh, but that's not exactly what the amillennialists and the postmillennialists are holding to. And the reason I, I lay the footwork there is that Fowler White's written an excellent article on recapitulation and revelation, and I wanted to, to just get that out of the way, Fowler, as, we, as I ask you, uh, how, do, how do we understand recapitulation, and, and uh, how did this come about, and why is it so important to understand that revelation is written in that way? Well, I think in general, what we're looking I guess it's helpful to uh, understand what we're looking at. When we talk about recapitulation, uh, maybe folks think that's a fancy word for something they don't hear about very mm-hmm. very often. Uh, it might be useful to just describe that as a a backtracking in in a storyline to a point earlier in in the story and going back over some material that had been covered, but covering that information now from a different vantage point. So the same events would essentially be covered, but from a different vantage point. And basically, I think that's what folks would say, uh, for those of us who take a recapitulation view of Revelation 20, would say that it's happening in Revelation 20. For example, uh, the main key that began to cause me to reassess my my uh, training in uh, premillennialism was when I I looked at uh, the vision of or and the prediction that's found in 27 through 10, and I noticed that there was a reference to the war in which uh, the nations were involved, and I thought, what is the war? Uh, that sounds like a war to which John is expecting the reader to refer back to a previous reference that he's already made. And uh, sure enough, as I began to look at the not only the English text but the Greek text, I realized that there was repetition of language there from the end of chapter 16 and also from the end of chapter 19, and I as I put that puzzle together, I realized, at least to the best of my discernment, that uh, that John was retelling the story of of the war at the end of the age, the battle at the end of the age between Christ and his church on the one hand, and uh, Antichrist and anti-church, if you will, on the other hand, at the end of the age. So, uh, that was the first clue that I had that there was a backtracking, a retelling of the same uh, events from a different point of view. So basically, when John says "and then I saw," often, oftentimes he uses that phrase. Sure. Uh, for the most part, in general, what he's saying is that it's not a completely new series of events uh, coming in this next vision, but rather that, in a sense, God kind of picked him up. 
and put him on a different spot on the set, right. rewound the tape, and played it again. And now John right. sees something, that, but just from a different yeah, perspective. I, yeah, I think that's a very helpful analogy. I think one thing that I think folks often make the mistake of thinking is that when John uses that expression, that he's telling uh, telling events in the historical order. Well, that may be the case, but we ought to ask the question, or at least assume that his first point of reference is to tell the story of his reception of of visions first. In other words, that's the order in which he is telling the narrative. What is the order of the visions that he received? And then ask the question, what is the relationship between those visions and history, between those visions and the events that are actually narrated in those visions? That, that's, those are two different questions that it seems to me people ought to keep in mind. Right. We don't have to totally eschew the, the chronological value of the word then, because right. John, John did see the, the, the vision after the one he saw before it. Exactly. And so you can still hang on to that. It's not a, you don't have, it's not a reworking of the Greek there. No, it is not. It's, uh, in fact, very much in keeping with it. Now, one another issue that I found interesting uh, with Revelation, particularly the premillennial read, is that there's this there's this hesitance to say that 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 the events can be out of order in any historical sense. But oftentimes, a traditional dispensationalist read of a, chapters eleven and twelve by necessity have to be out of order. I believe in in uh, eleven. Or twelve talks about the birth of Christ, and eleven uh, talks about the the two prophets, which are revealed at the end of the age, and and oftentimes they say that is a future event. So you've got the birth of Christ coming after the two prophets. I I was always kind of confused about that. Right, and I think that that illustrates the point in a, another context that I was making earlier, namely that there is a retelling of past history. Uh, but John has perhaps already told that story once, but now he's telling it from another point of view. And I think uh, to broaden the comment that I was making earlier, we could say that there are different points in John's narrative, particularly between chapters 4 and 20, where he tells the story of the destruction of the present heavens and earth uh, more than once. And uh, consequently, one of the major, for my uh, reading at least, one of the major clues for the structure, historical structure, if you will, of the book, is to notice uh, those places where he describes the destruction of the present heavens and earth. And that is a mark of the end of one cycle, and shortly after that, you will have the beginning of another. Right, right. Dr. White, I had a question about, um, I studied uh, eschatology under Dr. Vern Poitras, and of course he's written a fair bit on Revelation right. as well. Yeah, and he was I wondered, a prof of mine too. <laughs> okay, right. I wanted to know what your thoughts were, how, if, if your approach is almost identical to his in the book Returning, The Returning King, um, and also maybe your relationship to Greg Beale's commentary. Yeah. Well, in both cases, I think there's a great deal of uh, similarity to our our own approaches to those books, uh, to the to the Book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Vern's book, Vern Poitras's book, 
is a uh, a reworking of the material that appears appeared in the New Geneva Study Bible and now appears in the Reformation Study Bible. And then uh, as far as Greg Beale's uh, commentary is concerned, which I think uh, Keith would doubtless agree with me is is the most important commentary uh, out there today, on the, uh, particularly on the Greek text of, uh, of the book of Revelation. Greg and I personally go well back into the 1970s as uh, personal acquaintances, and then uh, he and I have uh, had correspondence over the years about different aspects of that of, of the exegesis of uh, Revelation. But uh, at any rate, Greg is a much more ambitious piece of work than I ever attempted personally on the book of Revelation, but I, I commend that commentary to all readers. One of the one of the great uh, insights, I think, uh, in that book is his emphasis on irony in the Christian life and how the church's perseverance in suffering is is a manifestation of their victory in Christ. And so the church is perpetually victorious uh, as she perseveres against her enemies. That's one of the major emphases of Greg's commentary that I think folks would really benefit from. Hey, Fowler, um, quick question here, just while we're talking about Beale's commentary. One of the strengths, I think, of the commentary seems to be its emphasis on the Old Testament as being yes. a uh, way of interpreting and understanding the book of Revelation. Do you see it that, that way? And if so, would you be able to um, just give our listeners uh, a, perhaps some uh, foretaste or, or, or excitement as to uh, the importance of, of understanding the Old Testament um, or the Book of Revelation in light of the Old Testament? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that is one of the major features of Greg's book, uh, aside from the thematic point that I just made about irony. One of the major features of his commentary is its uh, attempt to explore as many connections as possible uh, to the Old Testament. And so you will see his uh, really meticulous attention to the details of the text as he attempts to trace the uh, the uh, verbal and uh, thematic and chronological even connections uh, to Old Testament texts, and not only to texts themselves, but to uh, figures and themes, that is, persons and themes that played a major role in the history of uh, of Israel or the history of the Old Testament. So, uh, one of the I, I think that is one of the major benefits uh, to see. And, it, and what it, the real benefit of that I think is that people will see the unity of biblical revelation and uh, the continuity of biblical revelation. Now, also paying attention to the discontinuities and that is the advances that have been brought because of the person and work of Christ and in his mediation. But nevertheless, uh, the, uh, that that stands in direct contrast to Greg's emphasis on the continuity and and similarities to the Old Testament st- stands in direct contrast to what many of our dispensational brothers uh, like to emphasize in their theology. And uh, so the recognition of that continuity between Israel and the church, I think, is a very valuable uh, benefit of having Greg's commentary. 
Yeah, amen. Just a follow-up question to that. Um, Since our good brother Nick Batsig is in here, I'll I'll be the one to ask the practical uh, ministry question. Um, What advice would you What advice would you have, Fowler, for uh, those listeners of ours that that are preachers, pastors, or are in the pulpit uh, week after week, um, and they're thinking about starting a series of sermons on the book of Revelation. Do you have any, any practical advice for, for some of us pastors who are out there? Well, the way I would, I would urge that uh, you hold forth not just the... Well, let me back up. One of the things that I think happens, particularly when we come to the book of Revelation and any of these apocalyptic books in particular, is that we, uh, we tend to focus on the really horrific and scary portions and and uh and the horrors of of judgment which in fact is of course a truth that we want to hold out to folks on the other hand we also and i think this is one of the major things that sometimes happens by way of omission is we also want to want to make sure that people see the hope that is offered by the book of revelation namely that as has become kind of a uh, quirky way to say it, a, a funny way to say it, but to say to folks that the church wins, and uh, more properly that Christ wins, and through Christ the church is victorious. So I think uh, holding holding before the people of God both the hope that is offered uh, through Christ according to the book of Revelation is as important as holding forth to the people of of God and to the world that Christ is judge of the world, uh, that both both uh, sides, if you will, have to be presented uh, to the congregations. Oh, thanks. That's helpful. Now, one thing that people uh, think of often think of uh, in eschatology is they typically do think of end times and and primarily <laughs> studies in the Book of Revelation in particular. But coming from a Vossian or a Kleinian, uh, even a, a Ritterbossian, if that's a word, perspective, uh, eschatology has a much larger scope. And that's something that uh, Keith deals with here in his book, From right. Age to Age, which is brand new from PNR. Uh, we're really excited to have this. Uh, from Age to Age, the Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology. Keith, could you uh, try to explain to our listeners just what your your project or your program, your goal for this book was, and what you would hope the reader would would take from it? Well, the the goal for the book was originally much more ambitious than what what exists now. I originally proposed the idea to the publisher of doing a book that would cover eschatology from every angle, first dealing with the biblical theological aspects going from Genesis to Revelation and then dealing with it from a historical theological perspective, dealing with the teaching of the church for the last 2,000 years, then going into uh, dealing with the systematic theological issues topic by topic. Well, as I started to write this thing, the biblical theological section, the exegetical section, got so out of hand, as it were, that uh, we took a second look at it and decided to basically just do that as a single volume. And that's what the book um, has become. So, it, And it's tracing, as I mentioned, uh, all of these themes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. 
So you actually have sections on all the different the uh, either books or, or portions of books, like one of the minor prophets, etc. And you're you're showing the development of God's plan of redemption and how it unfolds throughout all of Scripture. Right. There's um, if you looked at the table of contents, it's essentially laid out like a a, a massive one volume commentary on the whole Bible. I go through right, right. Genesis, the remainder of the Pentateuch, historical books, and so forth. The only sections I didn't deal with in a canonical order are the are the prophets and Paul's epistles, which. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, based on the best of our knowledge, I tried to deal with in a chronological order as best that could be determined. So it deals with the 8th century prophets and then the 7th and so forth. In the beginning with the introduction, you do a very nice job of, of laying out some of the important hermeneutical issues that go into the writing of, of your book. Um, would you be able to, for those who may not be yet up to speed, have hermeneutical training, some of our listeners who are wondering how to approach their Bibles, how to interpret it in a responsible, um, uh, godly, and helpful way, could you give us, just maybe briefly outline some of the principles that you developed there in the introduction? Well, um I guess the first point, one of the points I mentioned is that I'm approaching this and everybody who looks at the Scripture and interprets the Scripture is coming at it from a particular perspective. And I mentioned in the introduction that I'm writing unapologetically from a Reformed perspective. Others are going to be interpreting the Scripture from a dispensationalist perspective, Lutheran perspective, or atheist perspective. And I think it's helpful to admit that up front because whichever perspective theological tradition we're coming out of uh, tends to influence the questions we ask of the text. And I like to get that out front because um, as anybody like Dr. White or myself, perhaps some of you who started out our Christian lives as a dispensationalist, we know that that strongly affects the kind of questions we're asking of the text, the kind of things we're looking for in the text. And uh, when we're looking at books written by somebody from a different tradition, it just helps helps to understand that. I mentioned a little bit about uh, the nature of um, hermeneutics in the sense of the building blocks of the words and the sentences and text, because one of the things I see in a lot of works is this, uh, you get lost in the forest by focusing so closely, not even on the trees, but on the leaves, as it were, that people end up losing the big picture. Uh, you can read a number of academic commentaries, and I'm sure every one of you have done this, where you'll end up on a 10, 20-page excursus on the meaning of a particular tense. Um, that's probably an overstatement, but you've, you've encountered something similar to that, and you get, uh, the de while the details are necessary, sometimes these commentators never pull back and let us see the big picture. So one of the things I was trying to accomplish with this is, is a both-and, look at, looking at the details and pulling back to view this in terms of the big picture of, uh, of redemptive history. Uh, Keith, uh, in light in light of that uh, big picture idea, uh, you you approach this uh, this uh, project uh, as you say, uh, having been assisted in your reading of the Bible by uh, Gerhardus Voss, 
uh, Meredith Klein and uh, uh, Ritterbaugh, Herman Ritterbaugh. But you have a slightly different slant than than uh, even these men in your eschatology. Can you uh, 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 fill out that uh, picture for us? Well, in in a previous book I wrote, uh, Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope, I think the, the title itself indicates one of the major differences. Another difference, uh, to some degree or another, is the preteristic approach to certain texts, especially in the New Testament, uh, particularly in relationship to the Olivet Discourse and certain sections of the Book of Revelation. Um, in those areas, I'm taking a different approach from some of those uh, those older biblical theologians. Can you uh, unpack for us? Uh, some of our listeners may not know what preterism is. It might be good to uh, kind of give a good definition of that. Preterism uh, generally has been used in the last several centuries to describe a particular approach to the book of Revelation. There are uh, a number of overarching approaches to the book. Um, futurism, which understands a good a large section of Revelation to be referring to events still in our future. Preterism is almost the opposite of that, which views a lot of the prophecies in the book of Revelation as having been fulfilled in our past, although they would have been in the future from the perspective of uh, of John, the author. Um, the historicist approach, which sees a lot of the, the book of Revelation is outlining, is, is prophesying events throughout the history of the church, and then the idealist approach, which is... Uh, best exemplified in Greg Beale's commentary, which views views it as much more symbolic, um, the, the conflict between good and evil, um, and less having less specific historical reference in the book. And unfortunately, in recent years, something that has confused the pictures, the growth of a small little uh, almost exclusively internet movement that uh, goes by a variety of names, whether full preterism or consistent preterism or hyper preterism. And these folks um, would, they say that not only have some of these prophecies in Revelation and Matthew 24 and such been fulfilled, but that all New Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the first century, including the second coming, the general resurrection, the final mm. judgment, and everything associated with that. And my view is uh, not that. In fact, I edited a book critiquing that view with uh, contributions from men like Robert Strimple and Charles Hill. Keith, I had a question about <clears throat> what you might think about um, Poitras' approach to the various millennial views, especially the uh, relationship of amillennialism and postmillennialism, where he would say in class, for instance, that um, that it's possible for an optimistic amillennial position to approach something somewhat similar to postmillennialism. And I wondered if you thought that was true um, and where you think you would fall on that spectrum. I think it is true. Um, in fact, I've told several of my friends, especially after reading Cornelis of Enema's book, The Promise of the Future, that my uh, version, if you will, of postmillennialism is so close to his version of amillennialism is to be almost indistinguishable. Um, if you looked at those two views on a spectrum, there's a, uh, an older version of postmillennialism which sees 
the millennium is a distinct, literally thousand-year golden age within the present era. Um, I would agree, however, with amillennialists who see the millennium as being the entire present age. So on that issue, I, my views overlap quite a bit with someone like Venema. Um, in fact, uh, Robert Strimple, speaking of him, we had several discussions following the publication of that critique of hyperpreterism, and he insists that I'm actually an amillennialist. So the uh, <laughs> the terms don't really make a whole lot of difference to me what somebody wants to label my view. I, I'm a post-millennialist in the sense that Jesus returns following the millennium, however somebody wants to see that, and that would encompass both amillennialist and prosmillennialist traditionally. Keith, I had another question about your book project as a whole. Um, I wanted to know what you would, might think that your book might contribute to a discussion of the relationship of biblical theology and systematic theology, um, which, as I'm sure you're aware, is um, always in jeopardy these days, it seems like, um, and how you think um, this book will support more systematic conclusions, which I think it, I mean, in my impression of it, it certainly does, but maybe you could flesh that out for us just a little bit. Right. I don't see any conflict, any necessary conflict whatsoever between biblical theology and systematic theology. Uh, approaching the same subject, the same text, just asking slightly different questions. Um, Voss, I think, was very helpful in this. He and the systematic theologians at Westminster were not at each other's throats. The biblical and exegetical studies um, can help the systematic theologians as they're formulating these, providing more nuanced readings of certain texts that they're using and uh, discussing. So I don't see these as being in conflict in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. uh, Keith, uh, are you, are you, now you had mentioned that originally your project was uh, much greater in scope than uh, having three parts, of which this book really is the first part, correct? Right. Uh, so are, do you have plans uh, to develop the other two sections, the historical and the systematic? I would like to do that at some point. I have not begun okay. any of the research for that, though. Okay, well, let, let's encourage, let, let this be an encouragement that we'd love to see that happen. Uh, right. they, Amen. I mean, because of because of Lane's question, you see that that's one that, uh, uh, and you're I'm sure we're not telling you something you don't already know that the this whole issue of pitting a biblical theology against systematic as if they didn't need each other uh, is is a sad spectacle. And and your work, uh, in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of what John Fesco is doing. Are you familiar with Fesco's work at all? I've read. Two of his books, uh, the one on the first chapters of Genesis and then the recent book on justification. Right. You will remember that in there, he's, his, uh, his goal methodologically is, is to deal, is to allow biblical theology, historical theology, and systematic theology to inform each other. And, you know, and so you get a, you get a stronger, uh, it's like three strands of a, of a rope, right? Three cords of a rope, which when brought together are... Uh, nearly unbreakable. Yeah, and Lane, you've done work on theological encyclopedia as well. This is right, right up your alley too. Yeah, yeah. That's that's why I asked the question. Because yeah, exactly. It seems like it, it seems like there's 
there's a, a resurgence of interest in this question, and uh, I, I just wanted to alert listeners to that because um, so much suspicion exists between various uh, disciplines in theology today, and it's very unfortunate and results in a lot of discord and um, a failure to communicate. Um, so, yeah, I, I like to ask those questions. So. Well, not only that, but we, we are all impoverished uh, because our uh, our doing of systematics or our reading of church history or our reading of the Bible becomes uh, uh, short-circuited, short-sighted. Yeah, I think if I could add something here, too. I sure. think, uh, you know, Scott Clark's recent book, uh, the one, The Recovering the Reformed yeah. Confession, right. mm-hmm. I think makes a significant contribution of reminding us of our what he recently described as a moral obligation that exegetes or, if you wish, biblical theologians have, especially biblical theologians have, to hear what the historical theologians and what the systematic theologians are saying, uh, or what have what they have said, if you will. And so that uh, that moral obligation, I think, is is really a question that most um, most biblical theologians haven't rest, wrestled with adequately, at least in my experience, which is admittedly limited. But uh, that's the sense that I get. Is you know, it's on. I'm I'm thinking, for example, it's one thing to recognize with biblical theologians that revelation is organic as a seed to a full-bloomed flower might be. But on the other hand, recognizing the systemic character also of biblical revelation is equally important. Mm. And uh, it, it seems to me that there's almost in some quarters an antipathy to systemic, the systemic qualities of biblical revelation, uh, even as we're uh, embracing the organic quality of biblical revelation. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, Dr. White, I wanted to ask you if you um, if you and Keith have a, a good debates at Ligonier about um, <laughs> your millennial positions and <laughs> whether you've been able to move each other at all. <laughs> you know, what's funny is we've been so busy working on this academy, we've had very, very few discussions about Revelation or Scatology. Right. And, and what we have what we have said is what he's already told you, <laughs> namely, <laughs> namely that, uh, you know, he, he has realized uh, what he had referred to earlier as the comment that he made to Strumple, or that Strumple made to him, that he was uh, seemed to be more, more closely identified or at least equally identifiable as a as an optimistic Amil, which is an interesting interesting uh, commentary. It seems to me. And apparently, I'm a pessimistic postmillennialist. There you go. <laughs> That's one way to put it. I guess. That's the pessimistic way to put it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, I was curious for either of you, where do you think, uh, well, where, where are some areas in eschatology that might need some more development or that could, that could actually use some more attention? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I know, I guess one thought that comes to my mind is, uh, really where, 
uh, Keith's book has begun, namely that of developing the historical unfolding of what becomes a full-blown eschatology, if you will, from Old Testament to New Testament. I, I think asking about the uh, asking questions about the, if you will, the Old Testament eschatology. What was what, if any, distinctives uh, stand out about that? Uh, I'm thinking of, for example, how Peter, in Second Peter in particular, drives his uh, derives his uh, eschatological outlook by reflecting on on Genesis and uh, the the flood narrative in particular is a predictor of the future. Uh, that's a fascinating thing to me, to realize that the past, biblically speaking, the past is a predictor of the future. And so the value of looking at the Old Testament uh, as a, as a uh, predictor of what the shape of eschatology to come, if you will, uh, is, a, is an interesting area to begin to, uh, to develop. Yeah. Keith, I had a question for you, and maybe uh, Dr. White also, if you could answer. Uh, what do you both think of Kim Riddlebarger's book, The Case for Amillennialism? Frankly, I enjoyed reading it. I didn't obviously didn't agree with every aspect of it, but uh, I, I enjoyed reading that book as well as the one he did on the man of sin. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, one of the better arguments for the amillennial position that I've read. Yeah, based on the exposure that I've had to to Kim's work, I would I would uh, concur with that opinion. What about um? I, I, I hate to keep asking on millennial questions, but what about like an Anthony Hukama? He has more of an earth earthly uh, kind of new heavens, new earth uh, yeah. slant on amillennialism, a different flavor, if you will. Well, maybe I I could chime in here on that uh, just as a historical note. Uh, that book, uh, The Bible in the Future, came out in 1979, uh, just as I was getting ready to graduate from from Dallas Seminary, where I oh, did wow. my T yeah, where I did my THM, and I remember the experience of, of a number of us at in the Dallas orbit who were, especially those of us who were Calvinists, was that. Hokema's emphasis on the new earth really changed the de- debate dramatically. Yes, yes. By by giving a uh, a uh, an earthliness, admittedly, an, an earthliness to the what was formerly evaporated into some kind of ethereal otherworldliness uh, by amillennialists to that point. So that was a refreshing. Uh, uh, new dimension to the whole discussion, and I think rattled a lot of cages uh, back in 1979. I think when the book was released. Yeah, I would. I would definitely agree with that. I used to have probably weekly friendly debates with a dear friend of mine who is a dispensationalist, and reading that book really helped to. Uh, I don't know. I didn't. I don't know how much ground I made in in, in millennial progress or even post millennial progress with him, but. But the the different perspective that Hokema had was 
made it at least more palatable and, and, and right. you know, allowed for a discussion rather than just thinking it was simply allegorical kind of thing. Right. I remember one of the things that uh, was characteristic of Vern Poitras's approach when I took that course on Revelation back in, gosh, I don't even remember, early 80s, I guess now, but when he offered it, one of the things that was most distinctive of his attempts was to bring the the opposing sides closer together. And uh, I suppose that was one of the benefits of Holcomb's book is that he closed the gap between uh, dispensationalists and covenantalists uh, as they were discussing those Old Testament prophecies. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a, a maybe a free-for-all question, not, not for anyone in particular. Um, yesterday we, we had interviewed Danny Olinger, who uh, serves as the General Secretary for Christian Ed in the OPC, um, he has a, uh, a little volume out. Uh, it's an anthology on Voss. And we were talking about Voss, and, and one of Voss's um, great insights, monumental uh, insights, and particularly, I think, for all of us here and for Danny as well, uh, was the insight that eschatology precedes soteriology. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now, now that if that is true, in fact, I mean that just revolutionizes the way that many of us uh, used to read the Bible, almost uh, perhaps in a either a proof texty atomistic way, or even as a as dispensationalists um, reading the Old Testament for its digging it for its moral examples. Um, but to have this idea that. All of Scripture from the very beginning is eschatologically driven, that in fact the new heavens and the new earth, however you perceive that, is already in view as the reward and the destination of, of Adam and all those that he represents. Um, it, do you find that to be particularly helpful in the work that you men have done? And if so, can... Uh, is there anything that you can encourage our listeners with in terms of, of revolutionizing the way in which they read their Bibles in, in a way in which Voss has done for many of us? Well, maybe I'll take a stab at it. Uh, I I think you're exactly right. If we think in terms of the – maybe going back to the point that I was making earlier about the the past being a predictor of the future. I think we could say the beginning is the predictor of the end. Uh, And particularly if we think in terms of uh, the Genesis 1 through 3, uh, or 1 through 2, I guess, really more properly, being being in in miniature, in uh, shape and trajectory, uh, setting the the direction uh, that, that would... Uh, that would give us the the uh, the shape of things to come to use that expression again uh, I think there's a lot of merit in that uh, in that kind of observation and and really is similar to the point that I was making earlier about tracing the the uh, eschatological uh, contours through the Old Testament story is is really maybe the heart of the task of biblical eschatology, particularly as it pertains to the Old Testament. But I wondered if, I don't know if Keith might have some comment on that. I don't know. Well, I know I 
there's nothing I can say that's going to uh, be as revolutionary as what Voss <laughs> but um, I do think one application of his point that's important for our readers, for readers of Scripture and the listeners to keep in mind is that if you want to understand biblical eschatology, you don't start at the book of Revelation. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to start with Genesis 1. Yeah. It begins Ooh. there. That's good. It is good. So we've come full circle, starting with Revelation and, and expanding through Keith Matheson's book and then and, through and Voss. Saying, don't start there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important to know how the story ends, and God's told us that. But we also right. know that he had a plan and a, and a future for his people even before we sinned. Right. And so I want to thank you both for joining us. This has been a great discussion. We love talking eschatology, and it's been a pleasure to have you on. And we're very excited to hear uh, and, and see the future of Ligonier, uh, particularly your academy. Yeah, we're really pumped about it and lots of work to do, but lots of uh, people to serve, too. So we're real happy with the direction that we're taking. Well, I want to uh, mention, of course, again, that you can pick the book up from PNR, uh, Keith Matheson's uh, From Age to Age, The Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology. You can also find uh, several books from Fowler White, ones that he's edited and also contributed to uh, whatever happened to the Reformation and by faith alone. Uh, We want to point people back to our website as well. In addition to Ligonier's, uh, we have some resources. and You can find more recordings. and I'd encourage you to go look at the archives. I've noticed that uh, not everyone knows that our older episodes, which are not available in iTunes any longer, are still on the website. You can do a search or just browse through the archives and find those there. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.